Well, we've got a decent number of downloads for the last episode. Our usual listeners seem to enjoy it, and a few new ones. But, Richard, are you any closer to understanding the wider podcast listening audience? I'm afraid not, Giles. They're a completely alien species. Yes, I know. I have been on Twitter. Hmm. How can we speak their kind of language? Well, clearly our podcast isn't getting through to them. We need some sort of translation machine. Or couldn't you just edit them better? Well, maybe. But I can only remove things from what we originally said. I dare say I could build a translator if I had the proper equipment. I was going to build one, but I never got round to it. You've got your chance now. Well, I shall need a lot of expensive equipment. This is something who? You've got £2.50. Hmm. Very well. I might have to cannibalise some of the equipment in the something who bunker, like this uh, door lock. Hang on. Someone's just burst through the door. It's Gaff. Gentlemen. Hello. How on earth did you find us? Gaff has been in the bunker before. You're not surprised to see me? Not particularly, no. Our guests usually come back. I'm surprised to see you. I thought I'd successfully killed your podcast last time. Well, despite your efforts, people listened to us anyway, didn't they, Giles? Must have been my fascinating explanations of astrophysics. I've returned to finish the matter myself. I'm sorry, gentlemen, but this podcast ends now. It's my moral duty. But we've watched both of the stories. Have we got in the wine? And the cheese and sticks? And there's lots of science to talk about. It'd be rude not to give it a go. Did you say wine and science? Oh, go on then. Play the theme. Hello and welcome to Something Who Podcast, episode 39. I'm Richard, and after we looked at the most recent episode of Doctor Who last time, it's back to the archives for two stories with a connection to 1969 and the space race. First up is Third Doctor Story, Ambassadors of Death, and then we'll have a look at Eleventh Doctor Outing, The Impossible Astronaut, Stroke Day of the Moon. And joining me in the Something Who bunker, as usual, are Paul and Giles and... As you just heard, back once more is guest contributor Gav. Hello, thanks for having me back. Uh, yeah, well, it, it's 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 uh, it's remarkably good of you to come, and and uh, hello, Giles and Paul. Hello. Oh, you want us to speak now? Okay. Well, you know, <laughs> hello. <right. laughs> Always a pleasure to have you fine gentlemen along. So, I guess we're going to kick off with Ambassadors of Death, a story nominally written by David Whitaker, but. In fact, with this one, everyone seems to have had a go at it, <laughs> including uh, Malcolm Hulk, Terrence Sticks, and Trevor Ray, and I'm sure we'll get into that soon. Directed by Michael Ferguson, it's the third story of season seven, broadcast in early 1970. I guess what I wanted to say about this initially was, this is one of these kind of strange mystery stories from the early part of my fan experience. Ambassadors of Death. There was there was no target book in the seventies. Obviously, it was well before home video, and this the plot is so incredibly ludicrously complex that you know no synopsis was ever going to really do it justice. So, 
it's a story that I grew up not really knowing anything much about until probably the, the mid-90s. Mm. I don't know what your experiences of it were. I'd lay a guinea to a gooseberry that we're all much the same on that score. Mm. Yeah, I don't think I uh, saw it until the DVD came out. So it was one of the last few... Uh, yeah, one of the last few unseen Doctor Who stories that I picked off of those that are available to see, of course. Mm. It would have been on UK Gold, wouldn't it? I must have seen it then. Mm. I saw it on UK Gold in the 90s, yeah. Ah, mm. you see, I didn't have that. So I read the Target book, and I have two very vivid memories, uh, one of which I've forgotten, and the other one is <laughs> where the Doctor puts the pencil in Thingy Bob's back, and I just, for some reason, that stuck in my mind as a work of genius. I don't know why. <laughs> and then the and then the UK Gold broadcast, which um, I think the quality of the satellite plus my two generation VHS copy that for some reason I made left me with a fairly kind of muddy impression of it. I think it's fair to say. Mm. I think I got it on VHS, but even that was quite an uh, quite a late one. It was, yeah. I think it might be ones I skipped because once the DVDs had started, I stopped buying the VHSs because I'm not insane. Right. I wasn't so desperate to see these stories that I couldn't wait another 10 years for them to come mm. come out on a shiny disc. So, yeah, I missed it then. Didn't have UK gold. So, yeah, it was, it was very late for me. Mm. I assume I read the book. Has anyone read it more recently? Because um, bearing in mind that the plot, many hands made heavy work of the original plot. So uh, <laughs> I, I was wondering if Terence had fixed any of the problems when he came to write the novel, because he often did, and there's more of an opportunity to do so here than than in a lot of the stories which just need needed tightening rather than completely <laughs> explicating. Mm. But no, nobody's read it recently. I, I do remember that Doctor Who Monthly did a sort of archive feature on it and the plot synopsis was utterly impenetrable. I mean, it, it, it went to about three pages, but it, it was just almost impossible to follow. So, so certainly Terence must have done a better job than that, I'd have thought. I guess we're skirting around the issue of who wrote what and and when i mean david whitaker was originally engaged to write something and i, I believe he wrote an outline and, and maybe part or all of episode one but who, who can fill that out i've got some information on that he was initially commissioned i believe for a six-parter which later became seven and in may of 69 which incidentally may the 18th was when apollo 10 launched Mm -hmm. right. And May the, May the 19th was his treatment deadline for what was initially called Carries of Death. And May 26th, Apollo 10 returned. I mean, he was late delivering the treatment. He was then commissioned for the scripts. And early July, he delivered episode one. A week later, Apollo 11 launched, landed on the moon. He then delivered episode two. And at that point, they were reworking episode one internally. He was then shown what they'd done with his episode one to show him the direction that they, they wanted to take because uh, they felt his work was sort of a little old-fashioned. He'd already reworked his story outline from a Trouton's serial into a, a Pertwee Earthbound story, mm. uh -huh. but they didn't like the way he was doing it, so they tweaked it a bit and gave it back to him and said, what do you think? They then had a meeting to discuss episodes one and three, and they sent him off to work on those. In October, Trevor Ray was commissioned to further rewrite episode one and Whitaker continued his work and then he delivered episode two and he eventually delivered episode three on November the 12th. 
So Whitaker had actually delivered episodes one to three in one form or another. Mm-hmm. One had already been heavily reworked and thrown back in his face. But after he delivered episode three, the day after he delivered episode three, he was told to stop by Barry Letts. And the day after that, Apollo 12 launched. Um, <laughs> and then a few days after that, Malcolm Hulk was engaged to revise episodes two and three. He was also paid to rewrite the storyline, but pre-production was already underway, so he was very limited in what he could do because they'd already decided on sets and things like that. Mm. But he was engaged to write episodes four to seven using Whitaker's outline. As I said, he was also paid to rewrite it. So I don't think he strayed far from Whitaker's plot, and he worked with Terence Dix. Terence Dix literally says that they wrote it together so it's I would say 80-90% of it maybe 95% is Malcolm Hulk and Terence Dix with yeah. some of Whitaker left in Trevor Ray's episode one so I think by the end of the rewrite it was fairly substantially a, a typical Mac Holt Terence Dix style adventure based on mm, a yeah. based on a Whitaker outline so I, I kind of came at this when I sat down to look and try and un- pick who wrote what i i came with the assumption that it was it was just a tangled mess and actually came away realizing it was a little well a lot clearer than that whitaker obviously wasn't making it up as he went along so he had a coherent outline that he mm-hmm. handed over and which they bought off him and mac hulk and terence Dix handled six out of seven episodes virtually in their entirety so although we can never know for sure we think that basically the story, in its broad strokes and possibly even down to a lot of the main beats, was came from Whitaker, and it was just the treatment of that that they weren't happy with. It was the tone that he it was, of, that way. The, the dialogue he was coming up with seemed too old-fashioned. Which is odd because one thing that's interesting about Whitaker is that he, although he was there at the very beginning when Doctor was a very different and very specific thing those first couple of years. He did manage to keep up to date with the show, and at least until... Well, it's the thing, yeah. Series 5. Mm, I mean, yeah. You know, he'd move forward a different tone on power, and again, Enemy of the World. The fact mm. that he pulled up Enemy of the World, which is a similar, uh, mostly Earthbound conspiracy mystery thriller, yeah. yes. might mm. have made you think that um, it wouldn't mm. need... It's only another step in, away from Enemy to get to Ambassadors. So mm. I, exactly. I and when you looking... know exactly what he was doing wrong. And yes, in between, he'd done The Wheel in Space, which is about us. Um, well. Which is. <laughs> <laughs> but his so work still has a there. harder. Uh, it has a harder edge. It's a less jovial tone when he's writing it than, ironically, I think Terence Dix. He writes a, a, a lighter, mm. more adventure based story. And Whitaker's tends to be these intricate mysteries that don't always necessarily tie up at the end beautifully. I mean, there's some oddities in in Evil of the Daleks that have a similarly kind of convoluted beginning that just sort of hang together and partly unravel and you kind of move on. But his his work has that sort of stiffness that you'd think that was what they were pitching for. Especially in season seven, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's strange. I mean, there's only a couple of things that I've seen about stuff that we know from Whitaker's version, and one of those was that Regan was the main villain throughout, mm-hmm. and that sending the ambassadors out on bank robberies and, and <laughs> raids was a heavier element towards the end of the story. There was more of that in episode six. But from what little I've seen, broadly speaking, what makes it to screen was 
David Whittaker's vision. I mean, there's minor details, like I found out that he wrote in a spacewalk, and in the end it was two capsules docking. Uh, you know, I mean, if it's that kind of trivial stuff, then, then I don't understand at all. So it can't have been those details that were the, the issue. Puzzling. Hmm. It's it's interesting because it's it's Malcolm Hulk. It, it feels to me as I was going through it a bit like a, a first draft of Invasion of the Dinosaurs. You yes. Know, you've, got, you've got a general, a politician, and a mad scientist. You've even got that. Yeah. I mean, in the background, I was thinking that, and then it all came to a head with this when Doctor Who meets the three astronauts who are um, watching television, who think they're yeah. on Earth, but they've oh, yes. just been brainwashed. Mm. It's the same sort of gag as in. As the yeah. people who think they're on a spaceship and aren't, it's the it's the it's the inverse of the yes. of the um, setup of invasion. So yeah, and yet sort of lacks tonally, it lacks the likeness of touch, even of a Malcolm Hulk. I think. Hmm. Mm. I'm going to get fixated I... on the tone because you've got you've got the plot covered. So I'm still I'm going to try and uncover <laughs> quite quite as Sherwood had moved on why they were sticking to this hard-edged thing when Terence Dix that's not his instinct and why it took them so long just to turn the ship around and give us what we got in, in season 8 it is the opposite of a sort of cuddly unit story from, from sort of later in the mm. Pertwee run even the unit characters are uh, you know the brigadiers are suddenly in this one he's I don't know muscular is the right word but he's sort of throwing himself <laughs> around and, and beating mm. people up I think that's all just Nick Courtney. Nick Courtney was gagging for any chance to get into fights and <laughs> shoot fire guns at people. He loved all that. Apparently he didn't. Apparently no, he didn't. Yeah. Sorry, that was, the, that was my joke and it was so awful. Sorry, sorry. I said it with a completely straight face so nobody would have known. Why did I do this? Sorry. Yes. No, he hated it. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say I find it interesting that it only went up from six episodes to seven because I think when they were they, they were planning this series and they... What, at what stage did they suddenly realise they needed to do three times seven episodes for the stories? Or to expand it to that extent? Because it does feel terribly, terribly padded. It's, it's not a terribly original observation. And it, it grates in a way that some of the more egregiously padded later later Pertwee stories don't. Because it's not got that charm and that lightness right. of touch that actually helps it. So you're kind of enjoying the ride more regardless of the fact that you can see, if you look at it, that they're just doing a load of run-around to, to fill 25 minutes or so, while the plot doesn't move forward terribly much. There's also a sense of dread when the incidental music starts, because you know there's not going to be any dialogue for a long period of time. <laughs> I mean, I know it, it, it has some knock-on effect, but there's five or ten minutes where they have that famous uh, stunt sequence where they try to hijack the capsule and, mm. and, and recover it, and that's all completely redundant mm. from a story point of view mm. because you could just cut from unit putting the capsule on the low loader to it being back at headquarters mm. and all that yeah. business with the fight and it's weird that, that that's this sort of complaint that comes up from is it Barry Letts who, who bemoans the, the budget oh, there's some, somebody injected a, a fight scene where there wasn't meant to be one in the script I don't know if it's that story or another one uh, it, I would believe that it was this, yeah, based on what mm. I watched the other day. There's a funny thing in that as well, because the story is desperately going for this very hard edge and serious science approach, and it's very slow and measured. And yet interspersed, there are these really jarring, silly moments, the vanishing tape, yeah. and the, the Doctor magnetising the, the hands to his car, mm. combined with him doing a silly old man voice. I mean... Mm. It, it, it's it's odd in a story that's telling you the rest of the time it's it's desperately serious and earnest and scientific and then you've got these mm. 
really horrible moments of magic thrown in, particularly the disappearing tape reel, which has no given explanation. I, I assumed mean, that all that stuff was David Whittaker because it all seems a bit static electricity and food machine and mm. and uh, Doctor Who's special box. I know he didn't invent the box, but I'm just lumping all that stuff in together. And yet apparently, apparently not. Sorry, you've just reminded me that I don't know which version of the script it appeared in, but the script suggests a conjuring trick. I think it says like John Pertwee could do a conjuring trick or something. Mm. So they just did the, the laziest possible Edit. Um, but the fact that it's clearly impossible looking to Liz and yeah. and the Doctor doesn't bother to tell her what's going on and they just move no, on. No, it's, it's rubbish, isn't it? It's interesting <laughs> hangover from obviously from Pertwee and them not being sure what they were getting. It's interesting that, that it ever got this far that they were casting Pertwee, who was obviously best known as Mister you know, Mister Navy Lark, Mister Silly Voices, and yeah, and all of that. And that they actually were writing this in. So they obviously didn't have the idea of just play yourself quite from the start. And this 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 got through three, four rewrites as well. It got through them taking it off. So you could you could forgive it if David Whittaker had thought, OK, they're, they're casting Pertwee. Mm. We'll, you know, I'll, I'll put in some of this shtick. But, um, we're, yeah, we're back to the power of the Daleks again, aren't we? Where... No, uh, shoot mm. me down if I'm wrong here. But for me, I think all the all those silly bits are in the first three episodes. And um, it's just struck yeah. me that there are a lot of things that are common to either the first three or the or the latter four episodes. Mm. It really feel, and again, it has just struck me that as it was the first three that are, although heavily rewritten, are based on a core of David Whittaker's script, and the latter four, you, what I read, but um, which wasn't what, wasn't quite what Gav said, but what he said was presumably true, was that Malcolm Ox started by writing four, five, six, and seven from scratch, and then went back and redrafted one to three to make them fit. Does that fit with what you said, or can that not be true? But anyway, there's definitely, isn't there, some sort of separation between the first three and the, the rest of it, as well as there being some lighter moments in the first three that then disappear. For me, all the, I won't call them plot holes, but the, the messiness of the plot, the things that I still can't quite get my head around, even now watching it for the third or fourth time. And <laughs> I went into it this time knowing that whenever I normally watch Ambassadors of Death, I have trouble following it. I even have trouble with the broad structure of the plot because so many of the details don't quite tie up or I miss them because they're badly explained or thrown away. That that obfuscates the broad plot for me. So I've never been able to quite get my head around it. And this time I thought, well, I'll pay attention. I need to, I need to get my head around this time. I'm not just watching this for fun. This is research. <laughs> this is serious. I'm being paid £2.50 for this. <laughs> and also, I watch it much more quickly. I didn't do it one a week. I watched it all over two nights and I still couldn't I still couldn't mm. follow it and most of the things that confuse me are in those first three episodes so something fun is going on there mm. and if you're really unlucky I'll tell you what they are but go on then no no you first I, I'm safe I've spoken for too long I've got to I've got to stop now because otherwise I'll overheat <laughs> I had basically exactly the same approach every time I watch this I feel it's kind of just sort of washing over me and I'm I'm not really taking it in and I was conscious watching it today making great effort that I felt like I'd never heard a lot of this dialogue before and I I couldn't put my finger on why that was whether I'd never fully engaged with this story or or what but I my overwhelming feeling prior to today was this story was confusing and boring and I didn't like it and and the weird thing is the the more I talk to most other people not everyone the more I discover that this is absolutely a beloved story 
And I ran a Twitter poll today and I said, do people think it's good, bad or uh, mediocre? And the number of replies I got saying, why haven't you got a, a superlative better than good? 80% <laughs> of people voted it good. And I found earlier on today, the more people were telling me how amazing it was as I waded traumatically through episodes <laughs> one to three, the more I didn't want to agree. But by episode, however many it is, 27, <laughs> I, I really came round to it. And I went making notes, what happened to this character? And then I would find myself crossing them out later when it was explained and I was writing out no explanation as to why the henchmen die oh no actually there was just dialogue later that I apparently <laughs> never picked up on before and I'd written so Tartalian is good now apparently and then I crossed that out because no he isn't he just gets the whole so all yeah. this stuff and I was just making really nitpicky notes and finding myself increasingly wrong about it and by the time I got to the end I think everything ties up Oh, good. Well, when I approached this, I was all ready to give this a proper slagging off and bemoan how it was like Lost um, <laughs> and that it was just made up as it went along. Nobody knew what was going on and they were just throwing in twists and turns and none of it tied up. And I've come away feeling <laughs> that it's like Tenet and it's bloody hard work, but it's probably all there. But you have to keep winding it back and mm. keep making notes until you damn well enjoy it and if you don't it's your own fault i'm not 100 percent convinced of this theory but i am i am not prepared to give it the slagging off that i was going to oh sorry yeah hmm. I'm, I'm a changed man i quite liked ambassadors of the but for for a lot of the reasons that i just kind of ignored in in previous viewings which were i don't know why i i didn't want to sort of give any credit to the characterization or the performances and Carrington is a, a brilliant character. Yeah. And mm -hmm. what really struck me this time was how it was an echo of the brigadier in the Silurians, that the yeah. brigadier had done his duty and, and wiped out the Silurians because he was convinced they were a threat to mankind and the doctor's mm. running around telling him no. And the doctor loses in the end in the Silurians and the brigadier gets his own way and here we have another military man doing the same thing. Mm and the doctor nips it in the bud this time. And I had a demented idea at one point. I thought, wouldn't it have been amazing if the twist had been that it was the brigadier, not Carrington, and that it was the brigadier trying to sabotage the whole thing. But anyway, that was a, that was a tangential thought. <laughs> I'm curious to talk about plot points because I, I came away surprised that I'd scribbled out all my snarky comments. Well, in that case, if you're happy for this to be another epic, can I just go... Oh, I, I haven't got that many, but can I go through the problems I had and you can explain to me? I mean, there's plenty of people who just inexplicably come back to life. I'm not going to list all the units, uh, all the Havoc stuntmen. <laughs> yeah. Who, <laughs> the thing that confused me is that the castle just settles down in the latter half. The bad is once Regan comes in. It's Regan and his underlings and it all gets a bit mm. clearer. But there's a lot of churn among the henchmen yes. in the early part. I was particularly irritated by this sergeant character who is privileged in episode one. We've got a lot of focus on him. He's leading yes. the battle. Yeah. Uh, he's arrested, taken back to unit yes. headquarters. He's helped to escape. Now, is that him in part two that we see during the... Um... No, Can anyone help me think, with this? I don't think it is because, <laughs> in, I, because I thought... In my head, back. we never see him again after part one or, or if he's released at the beginning of part two, whatever. And I thought that was 
I was waiting and waiting and waiting. And he never yes, showed up. Yes, I think you're right. That is a redundant storyline. Because yeah. uh, there's, there's odd stuff sprinkled in. Like, there's the bit where that bit early on where they say don't don't kill anyone unless you yes. absolutely have to and then they immediately go outside and <laughs> start murdering people yeah. and then when that sergeant gets the chance to kill the brigadier he doesn't and you yeah. expect there to be an enormous reveal later as to what that motivation is and all we hear is you were told not to kill the brigadier weren't you and that's all we're left with mm. so I'll give you that one mm. Who's done the risk assessment on that? You know, because it's, it, it, it it doesn't seem like it can possibly be worth the loss of life on both sides. I mean, no. you know, what's actually going on there? I think I enjoyed this more than I normally do, and my biggest problem, my biggest criticism, is that bloody battle. It sort of hangs over the rest of the story because it's so nonsensical, and it doesn't even look very good. It's just rubbish. It does look like an audition piece from Havoc, mm. or as you say, it could be the the battle that was inserted in the script that wasn't there. It doesn't make any sense in the plot. It confuses you. It clouds the motivations of the villains in the wrong way. Because mm. <laughs> what you are led to believe about what sort of people they are, based on that battle, the way they charge in all guns blazing, is never resolved because it isn't in the script. It must have just been worked up on location for a bit of fun. And it, it sort of knackers the next six episodes for me. So that's that's my biggest problem yes it works logically if Regan is the boss if it's a gangster operation mm. whereby they'll do whatever they want and they'll kill whoever they want to get the access to the aliens to mm. to rob banks and and further their crime empire but if the real top villain is Carrington as it turns out to be then as you say it makes no sense because Carrington then later tries to sell them this cover story that um, yes. the astronauts might be carrying dangerous plague-like radiation that's going to infect, and it might hurt people. <laughs> so <laughs> yep. to make sure yep. we protect everyone from this dangerous stuff, we're just going to murder everyone. We that's can the biggest knock-on consequence of that battle, the fact that mm. when in episode three we're wrong-footed by the fact that Sir James Suit brings out Carrington to talk to the brigadier and the doctor. We don't expect him to come clean. And what he should, and of course he doesn't come clean, but what he should, he should be saying something we believe. Because the mm. fact that what he says is completely, we, we know isn't true, because we've seen his, op, his MO in episode one, means that the intended twist later on, that he really was the villain after all, it's, it's supposed to be a double twist, isn't it? We're supposed to think, or maybe he's behind it, oh no, he had a good explanation, that's fine, it must be these other villains. Oh no, it really was him. But it's mm. ru that's kind of ruined as well. So, <laughs> as yes, I say, it does cast exactly. Paul over the whole rest of the story. And it it just makes everyone look stupid. The fact that Brigadier and the Doctor mm. don't so hang on a minute, you shot fifteen of my men. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> the um the Terry Walsh triplets. <laughs> How could they only have five faces between them? <laughs> so yeah, that's that's an, a shame. And uh, does anyone else agree that this is probably not I mean, considering the reputation the story has for all of its faults coming from tangled scripting and endless rewrites, that does seem to me mm. to be one that probably was okay on the page and then just arose during the production. Mm. Yeah, mm. can I change my mind? It's rubbish, this. Isn't it? <laughs> it's just no, I, garbled nonsense. I, I agree with you. I enjoyed it more than I ever have before. Normally they say with these things, these long Doctor Who stories, they don't work if you watch them all in one go, the way the modern kids like to. You have to watch them one a week because that's how they're intended to be watched. This this one, that's often true, but it's not in the case of Ambassadors. If you watch it once a week, there's no way you're going to remember anything. 
because all the details there are more details to remember than usual and they're all just thrown away mm. so the only chance you've ever got of understanding it is to watch it in one or two sittings i think that's the common factor in the last two times i've watched it where i've come away not having a clue what was going on i was watching it not necessarily an episode a week but an episode a day mm. and it was just long enough for my brain to drop certain yeah. threads I was interested in some of what you were saying about things that would change from the original draft or the original outline because it does seem to me that some of the best ideas, which may have been in Whitaker's script, some of the very best ideas get slightly watered down, which is a shame. The fact that there are two mm. villains working in concert but they both have different motives. General mm. Carrington is doing his moral duty. That's, that's, mm. how, that's my interpretation of his character. I think he was just doing his moral duty. I don't know. It's yeah. a controversial <laughs> take. Um, and Regan has his, his side, you know, his own interest in using these to get some, mm. make some money on the side. That's really good. But it's, as you say, that would have been clearer if they'd kept in these scenes of them... What did you say they cut out? That they, he was going to be robbing banks with the aliens. And basically taking them out in, that in, taking that in public. Yeah. So the whole idea mm. about getting the public riled up, which is supposed to be where this is going, mm. yeah. would have been more apparent if we'd seen that more clearly, if they'd been you know, bursting out of shop windows like Hauntons. But in, mm. all he does do with them is take them, one of them around army bases killing soldiers mm. which doesn't get the public works up it just mm. no the, to, to discover Carrington's motivation is is another one of those not very passable excuses for, for tying up a, a plot point because as you say that's that's not a good route to generating public alarm if he wants to do this big press conference at the end and make mm. make the world turn against them then yes unleash them on their streets rather than so I think keep mm. them secret I always judge the season's end stories by comparing to each other because I, I like comparing things. And Silurians has always been my favourite. And I think it's because it does have a wider, broader canvas. It gets out into the real world. Hmm. And that's, I think, what this is lacking. And Inferno is my least favourite for the same reason. It never leaves that one bloody room for seven episodes. Hmm. And so much shouting. And back on, and back on what you're saying about this being a fan favourite nowadays... Perhaps somebody should rush off and uh, one of us should rush off and check the DWM polls and see if it's gradually risen over the years because I think it was always the one that people were least impressed with. Mm. Probably because of the lack of the novel. We say that all the time. I think the novel... Did the novel come out even later than Inferno? Yes, it was the last part we know. And, and, the, you know, and the late video release. And, oh, there are so many things conspiring yeah. to prevent people actually having any interest uh, understanding of it, just like <laughs> the days on Power of the Daleks was underrated. Mm. Since you've been able to see them... I still felt I feel like Inferno is wildly overrated, and yeah. I don't really know, for all its faults, why your average impartial viewer wouldn't think there was more to get hold of in this, despite giving you a headache and not having mm. any jokes. Mm. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I always liked Ambassadors from pretty much when I first saw it for the kind of stylistic side of things. Like, I mean, I, I, I quite like Michael Ferguson's direction. I, I mean, he's doing the mm. same thing that, that he did in Seeds of Death with the Ice Warriors. You know, on the heath, and he's going to do it again in Claws of Axos with the Axons. Yeah, but but I, I kind of like that. I mean, I I know it's very slow moving, and and that kind of hypnotic tune is you know kind of gets to you in the end. <laughs> I'm hearing it now. There's not a lot of reason why 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 people keep running towards the astronauts to get zapped rather than running in the opposite <laughs> direction. But you know, but I kind of I, yeah, that sort of hypnotic thing I kind of quite like, and there's there's the stuff in the gravel works and so on. So yeah, you know, I, stylistically I quite like it. 
Mm. It's got it's got a, it's got a little bit extra maybe than than some of the more studio bound stuff. Trying to reassess it today, I I kept hearing other people's comments about it and not being able to disagree with them, but it didn't kind of override a lot of the issues that I have with it. Yeah, it's always kind of fighting with itself when I'm watching it, and like you say that that beautiful camera work where the the ambassador's coming out of the the sun and it's hmm. looming and it's tense and it's interesting and it's in this mystery thriller but it doesn't alter the fact that it's ridiculous that that the guy just stands there while people walk up to them and then you've got some absolutely beautiful bits of dialogue but then you've got all the incomprehensible nonsense like when the alien says why do you make us kill and you think (laughs) why why are you killing people they're not making you just (laughs) Sit, just don't. It doesn't make any. And isn't isn't that the one line of dialogue given to the ambassadors themselves in the entire thing, which makes them rather odd ambassadors, so far as I can see. If they know, if they have an option in it, in the matter, mm. and the problem is the concept that people just die by coming into contact with these creatures is quite a neat one, and that, that it's involuntary. But that that line of dialogue, yeah, undermines mm. it if they're consciously aware that that's that that's what they're doing. Can I ask another plot point question? Because, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, the thing that Taltalian builds and the Doctor replicates, it's a communicator, right? It's just so that mm. they can understand each other, so that they can talk to the ambassadors, but there's no suggestion that it, it's a remote control. It can't make them do things. No. Right. No. That's, no. That's... How the hell... Do, hmm. It's interesting as well because, I mean, it appears to be a fairly simple lexicon when they're testing it out. You know, mm. I mean, they sort of move forward, move back, stand up, sit down. Do a murder. And yet somehow they managed to use that to say, could you go into the room? There's a mm. safe in the corner. Here's the combination. I'd like to open that. <laughs> oh, and by the way, could you do over Sir James while you're there? But don't get the doctor because that could be a problem. I mean, it, 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 it's the, the, there seems to be a remarkably precise sequence of events that the, that the ambassador mm. goes through. They are acting brainwashed. That's the that's the other thing that doesn't yes. chime with mm. with what we're then told about them. What this reminds me of, and to be honest, Regan's scheme and this whole this whole thing, it would fit in a later series of the Avengers. Rather, mm. um, it's a it's an Avengers plot. Yeah. Like aliens being used, mm. it's very much. If you if you, if you put some Lloyd Johnson music underneath <laughs> some of the sequences instead of that bloody bit of, and tightened it up, the whole thing about using a, using a bunch of radioactive aliens to rob banks mm. is quite. Um, and I think that also creates a, a strange dissonance as well because you have all this serious hard science astronaut stuff, mm. and as you say, that jars against a, that Avengers style. Using mm. aliens to rob banks. Maybe that was the element that was too prevalent in the in the Whitaker script that they felt that that angle had too much frivolity and therefore Carrington, so um, Carrington manufacturing the war. The, yeah. I mean, bear in mind that the 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 story was originally carriers of death. We don't specific. I mean, <laughs> it struck me watching it today. Six episodes after six episodes of watching the ambassadors of death mm. and seeing the ambassadors of death come up every mm. week six times in a row. How did you feel about the twist? They turned out to be ambassadors. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people make fun of robots of death, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then at the end, the doctor packs them off and walks off with walks off set with a jaunty, yes. with a jaunty whistle, and yeah. Uh, yeah. There, there has been no ambassading. <laughs> no. 
And considering that John Abenary's in this thing, I mean, there's, I bloody well expect more ambassador, ambassading to go on. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. The, yeah so the, the kind of yeah, what happened next? It's it certainly leaves a leaves a bloody big question mark. Because ultimately, because I mean, Whitaker conceived it, uh, I've just remembered it was it was meant to be a a first contact. Yeah, that's the uh, thing, story. Isn't? That was the original. Right. And yeah, at the end, everyone walks off and the the resolution to the story is that there's not going to be a war and that they just get back in their spaceship and go back to wherever they mm. came from we're never told the story doesn't i mean we we weren't promised it because that sort of got left behind in the 27th rewrite but the 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 idea of it being a supposed first contact and that these are ambassadors that's just that just drifts off into obscurity mm. it reminds me of the end of the matt smith story with the zygons is that the end of Day of the Doctor or the other one? Yes, no, it's, it's, it's the, the end, end of Day of, Day of the Doctor. But then Day of the Doctor, where he locks him in the room, says, "Which is why they had to come yeah. back mm. to it." Yeah, and it has that element of this is a this is a big deal. Now go and sort it out. And you can't really do that. And they they, they make the same mistake with the Silurians uh, in the new series again because mm. they're they're opening up the world that we know mm. to become a world that we wouldn't recognize. And so you have to immediately dial that back mm. again because otherwise you can't set stories in the future without it being overrun with Zygons or blobby blue face people mm. or Silurians or whatever it gets bit Which is of. fine with most of season seven, if you accept that that's where they're going try to be plausible near future sci fi kind of thing. And then yeah, so you've got the Autons. The Autons can probably be covered up with a cover story of some sort or other. The Silurians are put back in their box and the play can again probably have a unique cover story and Inferno obviously as you say all happens completely out of the way of the public mm. so this is the one it doesn't feel like it would have taken much to just come up with some I knew you really you only need a couple of lines of dialogue just to explain humanity is clearly not ready for contact with yeah. our superior mm. spaciness yeah. we're we're buggering off um, until you grow we'll up we'll try you in you another 50 years yeah, yeah exactly That's, yeah. that would have been a neater and the fact that again you have the the alien who appears on on the spaceship, and then and then on um, who appears to be played by Bez or something like that. It's constantly like throwing, <laughs> it's kind of throwing shapes a bit. So again, why are you sending these ambassadors if they're not gonna if they end up being voiceless? And they're they're good as a mm. as a creepy creepy concept, but at some point the you know at some point they should have spoke for themselves, perhaps. I'm ringing my question bell again now. Another thing no, I'm happy to admit I didn't understand. Is yeah. the is it explained that the signal that the aliens are sending in episode one is contains the plans to the communicator that is yes. later built? Yes. Yes. Is that yeah. re is that skipped or was I just not paying attention? Was I half asleep when I watched this? So the main explanation for it is in a cut scene where <laughs> yes, I know I they, I heard that rumor. <laughs> they, they, there's a scene where Liz works out how Tartalian has sabotaged the computer. She unsabotages it. They run it through the machine, and she successfully works out that they are pictograms, and all that is gone. But it is recapped in a few words. Yeah. In the scene that is in there, where the doctor comes in and says, "You're right, Liz. These are pictograms," and then they somehow from that build a communicator. So do you yeah. for, do you forgive me for not having picked up on that? And it's a very important <laughs> point. Well, it's, it's yeah. past me, and it's a great it's a it's a great sci-fi 
you know, it's not something of a staple, but it is a good, good sci-fi yeah. idea. Yeah, that the first thing you send counters, people is, it? yeah, the first thing you send mm-hmm. people is a, mm-hmm. is how to how to communicate with yeah. you, and it answers your question. Yeah. What were they up to? What did they hope to achieve? Well, they did come here to talk, but we mm. didn't get the message. Perhaps if they'd sent it a bit earlier. But it, it it makes you also wonder how did Carrington arrange the whole thing without being able to speak to them, because mm. he's he's sent out this message to say send us three ambassadors and we'll send up a ship and you do the swap and this that and the other and we'll come and get you and we'll put a tape recorder in a really important scene off screen again recapped in three words which is another thing that I think I'd, I'd fail to understand is is where had the ambassadors gone and how they got to earth and it's just very quickly glossed over where the brigadier or Liz says some something like oh we were all sent out the room for 30 yes. seconds mm. and they must have got them then is that uh, sorry I missed that as well when when precisely were they supposed to be have been be, be, between when John Pertwee drives them in in the, in the truck and then when they get the oxyacetylene torch oh right obviously all this time I was assuming that they the baddies somehow managed to get them. oh right okay well answers no, none of my problems I thought they got them out of the recovery module before the unit arrived so that it was no. always empty no. because that made me no, wonder they... why they bothered to then have this massive fight to steal it if they weren't in it right okay mm. yeah that makes this this is more sense this is the thing I think it's all in there but it's so it's so badly put together so, that mm. it's it's really hard work to sorry no it's, I completely take that back it's not all in there some of it is in there <laughs> and there are definitely bits that aren't somebody here is the Christopher Nolan of their day <laughs> is it Trevor yeah. Ray Trevor Ray it's is... all of them yeah Trevor they're a gestalt oh, no, it takes, yeah they, it takes three of them to be as clever as Christopher Nolan <laughs> the thing is Ferguson's yeah the direction coming back to that it's got a good visual style in, in a lot of places and things like that shot the opening the opening shot of the whole thing as well that control room shot mm-hmm. is pretty, quite impressive you know considering the limitations they were working with you know it's got a nice visual flair but it, as you say it just feels like it falls apart on the basically putting the bits together to tell the story because i think the character based dialogue is brilliant the stuff that's isolated from mm. the intricacies of the plot i think regan's character is superb mm, yes and yeah. I, I love the way he connives his way through the story because he's obviously developing his opportunities as he goes mm. yeah. he's doing what carrington says some of the time and then occasionally acting unilaterally mm. and then throwing in the occasional thing to to save his own skin and there's the beautiful bit at the end mm. where um he just sort of gives up because he he knows the the jigs up but also he then uh, proffers the idea yeah, yeah that essentially saves the world yeah and not to true. say that you won't somebody forget might it, also... you won't forget it was me you? yeah <laughs> and it's and it's just so self such brilliant self-preservation yeah. and mm. he's beautifully played i think the the bit at the end with carrington where it all comes off the rails for him mm. and he has that dignity where he puts on his hat and he straightens it mm. and he's he's this sort of tragic and slightly sympathetic figure and mm. it back to what I was saying about the Brigadier, it's not a million miles away from all yeah. of the Brigadier's motivations mm. against the Silurians, makes... he just thought he was doing the right thing. Do you think that's why there's a, there's a one line reference to the Silurians at the beginning? Or is that just a clumsy yes. bit of continuity? Well, because they don't have uh, you, it could be either way, couldn't it? It could be the Eric Saywood touch of linking yeah. all the stories together for no very good reason. Mm. How, how's Nyssa? Oh, she's had 24 hours sleep from the Delta Wave Augment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I... <laughs> Regan's got quite an extraordinary wardrobe, hasn't he? 
because some of the time <laughs> yeah. he's wearing a suit, and then he's got that his sort of bakery outfit, and then he's got this mm. most you know he's sort of space age you know sparkly white outfit as well, and he seems to to wear them interchangeably. You know, there's, <laughs> there's no particular reason why he's wearing any particular outfit. Also, I'm I'm I'm, I'm perplexed by the security at the space centre because they seem to be think it's perfectly reasonable that the bakery van goes to the <laughs> decontamination area mm. <laughs> yeah it's it, it, it's hard to follow mm. and Lennox I think is, is, is a nice character too mm. another, another good Cyril Shapps outing mm. and, and I like the, the, the uh, interplay with him and Liz the way mm. she manipulates him um, and there's that beautiful bit where she suggests that he escapes too and he says where would I go so so nicely played and and, yeah. and sad and then he has that sad ending basically off screen yeah I think that was the other bit that I said was unforgettable that I couldn't remember from the book when we he was uh, left with the radioisotope right. he feels yeah, like a that. very David Whittaker sort of character that sort of sadness and mm. minor mm. tragedies is Another very common Lesterson. yeah yeah it's a bit like that the guy in um, Enemy of the World as well, isn't he? Uh, Federin or whatever. He's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Michael Michael Wish was very good, isn't he? Yeah, so, yeah. So I hadn't realised it was Davros until the credits. Yes, came yeah. And he's only. It's funny. He's only in the first two episodes, mm. and then it's mm. funny. We got to got, I got to episode six on watching, and suddenly thought, "Hang on, where's Wakefield yeah. gone to in the midst mm. of all this?" Because we mm. suddenly then go over to doing base launch related stuff by by doing like close ups on people behind consoles reading off things and so on. Um, the Dolly Bird out of um, out of up Pompeii, amongst others. <laughs> and then Wakefield rather 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 brilliantly comes back. I don't. I mean, it's not the same character. Uh, no, we get, well we got we got two two lady controllers actually. Yes. Yeah, got th- and it's a shame that she just again disappears she disappears halfway and through. Then, then we get the yeah the, the up on pay girl. I was relieved there wasn't too much of people sat behind desks reciting numbers mm. in a meaningful way because there are some stories which seem to be up fifty percent that and mm. that's yeah. my memory of this. But there was a hell of a lot of holding at I mean, fifteen to sixteen yeah. uh, up to seventeen. No, it's fairly meaningful and what, counting. What they've what yeah. they say during those intercutting yeah. scenes, and then That's rather cool. brilliantly, Whitefield obviously comes back for the for the yeah. end. But you wonder but why why they didn't mm. have it. It should have been a, a bigger framing device throughout the story. Yes, you wonder it, why it feels they didn't like have... it's set up to. Because if, if he'd been if he'd been along and commentating, because it, it suddenly occurred to mm. me watching it, you know after watching the first couple of episodes, I said that oh of course he's being James Burke, isn't he? He's mm. being you know because by this point we'd have been. And this is the, the interesting thing, and especially it relating to Seeds of Death, which is the other Ferguson, and obviously Seeds of Death is doing a sort of riff on the space age hmm. stuff at the at the very beginning of the Apollo era, I guess. You know, which, considering he was apparently doing that without an auto cue, I mean, I know he's an actor, hmm. but some, but I was still quite, you know, I was surprised when I read that he did it without an auto cue and was deliberately like trying to flick flick his eyes from right to left, mm. as if he was reading an autocue to give that impression. If he'd done that through all six episodes and just had, had him occasionally popping up to be a Greek chorus to tell us what was going on and bring people up to speed, and then had you know, episode seven where he turns out, you know, doing the interview with Carrington, turns out to be crucial to the entire denouement of the plot, it would have been rather a clever idea. I mean, it's a big influence from, I think, the Quatermass experiment. Yes, it's probably yeah, not, well, that's the other not, thing we haven't mentioned. Yeah, mm-hmm. Not unique to it, but mm. the, 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 the news mm. the news coverage 
being the commentator. Mm. Yeah. And of course, yeah, very Quasimazzi anyway. Toxic astronauts. Yeah, the exposition doesn't feel too too bad in his voice. You, you sometimes get some pretty clunky stuff dumped on you, but when it's the the reporter, it doesn't seem so bad. Mm. Mm. Yes. There's a very touching moment, I think, in 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 this as well, where the the, the brigadier wants to send the, the doctor off, and then he also wants to go and see him again when he lands, you know, uh, and, and and sort of say hello to him again. But he stopped because uh, decontamination, whatever. But it, mm. it it feels like the brigadier is is sort of slightly a, a loose end when the doctor's not about. I don't know what to make of that, but I, but I just thought it was quite. I thought it was, I thought it was quite funny that the brigadier just just seems to want to to be close to the doctor. It's got all the answers. That's why. Hmm. Mm. I was really impressed. There's a great bit with the brigadier in uh, episode five or six, and brigadier's doing some really good detective work, and he's been analysing this and that, and he's looked at the mud on people's shoes for <laughs> chemicals to work out. Yeah, doing a Sherlock which part Holmes of the world. routine. Yeah, mm. I mean, it comes to absolutely nothing, but I, I love the fact that he's <laughs> doing all mm. this thorough stuff that might actually lead them somewhere. Mm. It, deploying his resources mm. so Giles there's some pretty duff science around all the rocketry I think oh, I mean I'm, I'm thinking perhaps of the of the sort of 30 miles an hour as the thing is whizzing across the map at unbelievable speed but also there's you know all the, all, all those <laughs> that will kind pass of, me by I'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the 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 premature ejection of the first stage or whatever it is, it, 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 it all seems a, you know it's all going to be absolutely you know right on the edge and then suddenly everything's fine again. I don't know. It, it, it doesn't fill me with with a, a real sense that that anyone knew what was what they were talking about in terms of rockets. Uh, no, well you know, with your concerns, I guess. But um, you're gonna you're gonna catch me out now because it, I, I I must be honest. I started watching about two weeks ago thinking we were going to be recording a yeah. bit sooner than we are and now an awful lot of that has faded into the background and I ended up watching like the last once once we had our recording slot fixed I then caught like I postponed and waited and watched the last two episodes a lot closer to time mm. and I'm afraid I just didn't have the I didn't have the will and I didn't have the commitment to this podcast it shames <laughs> me to say it to go back and watch the first five episodes again and refresh my memory <laughs> Nobody should have to watch uh, it twice within the same fortnight. <laughs> I, I'd say that too much. There's so. an interesting th thing they set up with, with the space capsules. So they, the idea was that the uh, lander goes to Mars and mm. then takes off from Mars, but it doesn't have the re-entry capability. Mm. So they have to send up the recovery capsule yes. to do a space rendezvous to, to dock, to get the people down to uh, to then bring them back to Earth. It's a horribly inefficient system, but it led to a nice um, gratuitous uh, space-based model shot as they mm, desperately yes. tried to emulate 2001. Yeah, and it's funny. It never struck me before watching that the, the, there's a second parallel to 2001. At the end, of course, they go to the alien ship, which is in this surreal environment mm. as per 2001 with this fiction designed for man and and so you've oh, got yes, the, of course, uh, the, yes. the Dave Bowman character in, 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 in his fake hotel room like you've got the humans watching the fake football match and I thought that was mm. an interesting thing, I don't know how deliberate that was but uh, 2001 hanging around in my brain mm. but I, I, I dispute that Procol Harum is evocative of Blue Danube. I'm not sold on that idea. <laughs> uh, no, but then it's um yeah, it's obviously very close to. Where did they play it? They did play it in space, didn't they? 
Is it Apollo 9? Is that a real space-based reference? Because I've heard people claim that it's uh, attempting to evoke the the Blue Danube sequence from 2001. Well, I think vis visually it is, but... Hmm. Um, but not the music. Are, are we kind of winding towards a conclusion on this? I, I think we should start a fan theory that uh, that Regan is the master. Ooh, nice. <laughs> I mean, he was he was great, and definitely a worthy villain for return. And I like the fact that neither him nor Carrington are just gratuitously killed off, which mm. would have just tied up loose ends in the way that we're expected to believe. There's never any mm. investigations or court cases about that kind of thing. But instead, we're left with this idea that maybe Carrington has to go off to a, a mental hospital or something like that, and Regan probably slips slips out of his handcuffs on the way to the police van or something. Mm. Should be a big finished series about Regan. Mm. Well, there will be. I was, watching the, I was watching the Sweeney earlier. All this talk about Regan. There was oh, yeah. a yeah, there was a fist fight in the Sweeney, which is almost as ridiculous as the one in episode one of Ambassadors, except <laughs> it was supposed to be funny. So um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's not very helpful. Just the Sweeney's always good for that yeah. sort of thing, isn't it? Yes. I have one final question, which isn't rhetorical, which I didn't bother to look up. Does this in any way? fit in with waters of mars in terms of when mm. who who were the first people on mars i can't remember what water mars says about the characters in that are they the first settlers are they the first humans to land because obviously all the chaps in ambassadors uh in mars thingy six would have mm. been the first people it's on the mars. first well, base isn't it yeah I think and it's until the until, until that I, until that um Oh, Capaldi, as far as episode, they keep pushing it back, but it's just like real life. Mm. Archaeologists keep pushing things back through, mm. through endless research. Oh. Mm. I can't remember, but there is great scope for a sixteen-part box set, which ties up all of the, <laughs> to all of that, and what Sutek was doing there, and everybody. It's um, it's going to be. A, mm. I've been working on it. It's my magnum opus. The Martian Chronicles. Yeah. And, and is this the earliest example of the uh, console not being in the TARDIS? Apparently. Yes. I think it is, yes. Unless you include, of course, the mind robber. Oh, yes. Mm. You're yeah. absolutely right. It's the but second. you'll find. Yes. Or unless you subscribe to the theory that that lounge mm. is the TARDIS and it's just... Oh, my God, that's set. I mean, I'm used to the unit HQ changing every week, but I had never noticed before that rather than the Doctor's lab, I mean... Next week in Inferno, so it's, in a, it's in a hangar somewhere, isn't it? But it's mm. <laughs> it's got mm. gas lights or gas wall lights. <laughs> Very odd. Yeah. And apparently that sequence, well, although it stinks of being padding, apparently it was added because they wanted to muck around with. And this is the Barry Letts influence coming in, I think, because apparently so apparently this this sequence with the, all the time jumping around at the start was added so that because they wanted to do a test of what sort of things they could achieve with the new video technology mm. apparently right. so. I thought you were going to say they wanted to do a test for Day of the Daleks in uh, two years time oh, to yeah. see, you know, well, yes, get away yeah, with quite. it <laughs> maybe it was the same so. thing all over again Yeah. Mm. maybe it was all the dress rehearsal for the disappearing veal <laughs> well that was what uh, I thought was there any kind of attempt to, to marry those two things together and, and you're right that, that all that stuff at the beginning is a, is a late addition and therefore it's unintentional that mm. there's, there's a bit of appearing and disappearing of mm. other things mm. for no reason 
So if the last one was written in 1969, we're now going to move on to Impossible Astronaut, which is set in that year. Uh-huh. Uh, written uh-huh. by Stephen Moffat, directed by Toby Haynes. It's the start of Series 6. So it kicks off with a, with a kind of remarkable... I don't know, is it clever or is it stupid? That all, all the kind of historical stuff, the Regency, the World War II tunnel and the Laura and Hardy, it's, I mean, it's clever, I suppose, but, but I mean, is it, is it too clever? <laughs> I'm not going to criticise my mate Stephen Moffat so it's both at the same time yeah. uh, what's the point of it again is it just to establish time has passed the Doctor's been out having fun sort of yeah for mm. 200 years well, they, and there's a couple of lines of dialogue attempting to explain it one is wave to us out of the history books mm. Mm. and and, then, and I put a question mark next to it and there's a lot of that and it's sort of showboating yeah, and it's mm. fun, and it's funny, and it's inconsequential and frustrating, and you're just expected to move on and not worry about it. Mm. And I thought that was a curious parallel, as as it had me feeling a lot of the same feelings as Ambassadors of Death, but that it was sort of intentional, or at least not unintentional this time, rather than it being twelve different writers all not really knowing. Mm which threads to pick up and put down. If it's someone's singular vision, I don't know how forgiving we should be of stuff like that where it's inventive and chaotic. But, yeah, what is the point of it? I wasn't going to bring this in this early, but do we think that there's a a distinct shift right at this moment, at the start of Series 6, towards um, the style which will become Moffat's signature for the rest of his time there? He spent Series 5 doing uh, a sort of Russell pastiche. Yes, and although there's a running storyline, it's it's not nowhere near as complex as it will later become. No. I mean, and mm. so yes, all those opening scenes, there's lots of that sort of thing for the next five or six years, aren't there? And yeah. and then the complexity of this story in itself, the complexity of the season in itself, the fact that yeah, yeah, you know, what a third of this is is only there to advance a, a season arc. Mm. That's all new. I think maybe it's the high watermark of that. Not only is it the start of this, it's actually the most single most complicated season that Moffat does. Mm. Mm. Yeah. When I was making a c- couple of comments and notes about things that happened at the start of the story, and I was throwing forward in my mind and getting frustrated, knowing how they become resolved or not. And it took me a while to remember that's not anything from the end of Day of the Moon. That's from the end of whatever it is after Let's Kill Hitler. If it's not the end of that one, I can't even yeah. remember where they come back to that beach to resolve that storyline. Isn't line. that at the very end of the season? And the Wedding yeah. of River Song, yeah. Is it? Is that is that the story with the Tesselect? Tessela- yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I've yeah. only watched that once because... Well, the Tesselect, the tesselect is in Let, Let's Kill Hitler as well, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But isn't that the, isn't that the is story it, that resolves the, tes- the paradox on the beach? Yeah, the Tesseract is introduced in Let's Kill Hitler. And then, and it's and then, then used that's as the, the, yeah, the final episode. It's then used as the of, of in Wedding of River Song. <laughs> I thought the Reading of River, River Song was the one with... Um, uh, You're thinking of the husbands of River Song, possibly. I am. You're yeah. right. <laughs> the conclusion that I came to, I asked myself, can I review this story? Because I either need to review it knowing how that wraps up on the beach, or I will review it based on how I remember it on the date of broadcast. Mm. Because I was incredibly frustrated watching it again, knowing how it ties up. Mm. But that's not to say that it doesn't stand alone if you don't know how the story ends 
Is that, a, is that a valid way of looking that's, at it? I mean, no, do, that's not, not to say it doesn't stand alone. It doesn't, but for different reasons mm, than... Yeah. Mm. I would say don't watch The Wedding of River Song again because I made the mistake <laughs> of doing that. And it's, it, it, it is the most frustrating 45 minutes imaginable, I think. Mm. At least this has the merit of being early in that story arc, so yeah, a lot of it is quite watchable. Do you think that it was all plotted from the moment of writing that scene on the beach? Did did Stephen Moffat know? Yeah. Very the, the, good the question. Selector? <laughs> because the thing that frustrated me most with the foreknowledge that I'm not supposed to have first time watching this episode, yeah. when he dies yeah. and they have the dialogue, Amy says, maybe he's a clone or a duplicate. And that is the signal to the audience that he is not a clone or a duplicate because that would be... Hmm breaking the rules of television signposting mm. and then you've got Canton who turns up and says he's definitely real that is the mm. doctor yeah. so you've got you've got double the emphasis on this is not a fake out mm. yeah. whatever you're seeing is going to blow your mind because mm. I as the author I'm not going to lie to you about this yeah. it's not a fake it's not a duplicate what you're seeing is all mm. real which then presents the problem is too big it, it, what can you do with that obviously yeah and it, it put me in mind, um, funnily enough, in both ways at the same time of Avengers Endgame, when, when Thanos kills Loki, spoiler alert for mm. anyone who hasn't seen the highest grossing movie of all time, <laughs> and he says, no resurrections this time, and it's, there's then a trust with the audience that, that he's not going to yeah. just spring back to yeah, life. Yeah, one of the other characters raises the, asks the question for you, doesn't he, in the same way that, as you said, River mm. does. Yeah. So he says, but he's been dead before. That's the point. They they say that, don't they? Yeah. Is, they ask yeah. the question the audience is thinking. Yes, mm. and so you answer that. It's like, well, this is this is the Doctor, and there could be time travel, and he could be a clone, or he could be a duplicate. So he appears to be dead. And yes, exactly. They the the question is answered that you're asking in your mm. head, and they say no, it's all real. And then they reinforce it when it came to the mid season break with that cutaway teaser directly after a good man goes to war, the Doctor Who will return bit. You go underneath the lake and see the Doctor's skeletal hand clutching the sonic screwdriver. Oh, I'd, for wow, I'd, I'd forgotten, forgotten that. that. A lot of people do. Okay, is there any explanation for that? I've got into big arguments with people about whether or not that is, what do you call it, diegetic or not. Yeah. Whether that is meant to be part of the narrative or... How can it not be? But again, they keep, they keep kind of reminding us. Do you know us. what? There's a similar... Kevin and I are going, to do a, are going to do a Lost podcast at some point, and that reminds me <laughs> of a similar, a similar trick, cheats they pull at the beginning of season six, mm. the most controversial season of Lost, which makes or breaks any fan. But there is an underwater, a zoomed down underwater shot of the island having been submerged at the very mm. beginning of season six to tell you that you are definitely not in an alternate reality, but that can only be a result of the bomb having gone off at the end of the previous season. And of course, that didn't happen. So that's one of the only things in season six where their bait and switch actually doesn't play fair. Mm. So it seems that going underwater is the last refuge of a scoundrel <laughs> in narrative terms. But I've certainly got into big arguments with people who say, no, it's just promotional material. And I'm saying, yeah, but it was, it was, it was pitched, you know, the way it was shown. Yeah. Oh, you're saying, was it a trailer? Was it in the episode? It was shown, it was directly after A Good Man Goes to War. Well, that's part of the episode, isn't it? Whether it was or not, it came through Moffat. We'd had the BBC slug line 2012 or right. whatever. Oh, I see. And then the next thing that came up on the screen was... Is it on the DVD version, though? Or the iPlayer version? Good question. Version? You mm. can have a look. Mm. So, Gav, right, mm. you asked this question. Ordinarily, you would think, wouldn't you, that as these questions are resolved in the same season, 
that might be several months away or 13 episodes away. But for goodness sake, you would ordinarily think that they would not have started work production on the first episode until the whole thing had been plotted, if not every episode written. I would never think twice about that. It's the smallest unit of <laughs> cultural mm. art of television in which you could expect some kind of internal consistency one season. But I think you're right. It, it feels, it savours of having been made up as it's going along. Because the cleverness of the explanations, both within the episode itself and the larger questions that are answered over the season, there are any clever and inverted commas here. Whereas Moffat had never really let me down before. They, it always, hmm. whether he'd made stuff up as he was going along or carefully plotted the whole thing out on um, graph paper beforehand, it always felt like it had the latter, you know? He was good enough at papering over the cracks and giving you little bits of misdirection so you don't think mm. too hard about the things that don't quite work. And here is was the first time it started to fall down. So the idea that, it's, that he might have written himself into a corner by starting, or maybe, you know, by starting with something of such a big moment, maybe setting himself a challenge, saying, this will look good, I'll think about how I'm going to get out of it later. It's got to be possible, hasn't mm. it? Because mm -hmm. what other explanation is there? And it's so odd that he didn't, this is all off topic, of course, isn't it? But the explanation <laughs> that it's the, the test lector is possibly the least satisfying explanation we could have had, isn't it? It's, mm. Does anyone like that as a... Well, it doesn't fit with anything that you actually then see in the episode, does it? No. It's not that it's, it's unsatisfying as a conclusion to what we've seen, but it just feels mm. unsatisfying. You would expect Moffat to do something to do with time travel mm. or an alternate reality. The, the mm. last episode, episode, Wedding in River Song, is entirely set in some weird alternative reality, and yet he yeah. still doesn't. Mm. He's got the ideal opportunity for this to be an alternative doctor because he's set himself this challenge that no, it isn't. Do they say that? You said it's not a clone or a... Yeah. Well, a Amy says maybe he's a clone, maybe he's a duplicate. Mm. But... It Nobody denies he could be from an alternative universe, and yet hmm. we don't get many of them in Doctor Who. We haven't had one since, you know, there was Inferno and then Rise of the Cybermen, but it's been a while, so you hmm. could have gone down that hmm. route, and I don't think anyone would have felt cheated. The other thing that's just sprung back into my memory was, correct me if I'm wrong, this was the season with the Gangas. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Was it not? Hmm. And that resolves some of the Amy plotline. Hmm. Yes. Well, And yeah. that was the weirdest thing, was that turned out to have nothing... Because that was the biggest signpost. Well, and we do get the duplicate, the ganger doctor in that. Exactly. Yeah. Would that not have? But then he kind of delighted in some ways, and you thought, okay, he's being he's being clever, clever here. He kind of delighted in in presenting us with various options of oh, it could be this, you know, various various things that could be a fake doctor hmm. throughout. Certainly in certainly in the first part of series six, because you you've got two. Well, and and of course that's that's the second part of series six when you get the test selector. So he, he kind of delights with teasing us with, oh, it could be this, it could be that. And I remember the fandom going wild with theorising at the time and everyone saying, well, it won't be, yeah, but it won't just be a duplicate because... Was this the period when he was also in the midst of resolving the big Sherlock cliffhanger, which ended up being two fingers up? No, I don't think so, because Series 1 of Sherlock came out after Series 5. He's definitely in, got his Sherlock head on, though. I mean, there's a little tiny moment where the Doctor works yeah. out the clue of the three sign, you know, the little girl's name, but it turns out to be three signposts. Mm. And the way he explains that mm. is Sherlock, yeah. not the Eleventh Doctor. And I think it's the mm. first of many occasions where they, they start to cross-pollinate. Yeah. I remember the whole sort of thing on the cover of Doctor Who Monthly saying, you know, one mm. of these four characters is going to die. Yeah. I remember, I remember my immediate reaction to that was, oh, no. 
What a lame premise for the start of the season. It, mm. it, it didn't make me think, oh, oh, how terrible. The trouble, the trouble with Mob Moffat and Death is that it's, it's never final, is it? Mm. He, he sprung it too many times. There's too many. You know, we already had two Rory deaths in the previous series. Well, exactly. Rory dying became a running gag in series yeah, five, didn't it? Yeah. Indeed, and I guess the thing that worries me is that it's you know, death being so final in everyone's experience but in Doctor Who oh it's fine don't worry about it we'll, we'll sort it out it, it's just so so fake so so unlike our our experience in the real world that it's it, it's, it always seems disappointing when it happens mm-hmm. it, take, it takes any sense of jeopardy as as well when yeah. when you know that if a character is in dire straits as the Doctor is at the start of this episode and rather than worry about his safety the instant it's it's funny the instant he dies you know he'll be okay, but up until the point mm. where he's shot, <laughs> yeah. there's tension. Yes. And then once he's dead, you think, "All right, so you know we just have to wait and find out how he comes back to life." Mm. And and it and it just bursts that bubble of, like you say, of I mean, Doctor Who in that era doesn't have an enormous grounding in reality, but the last of it evaporates <laughs> when just death is death is not a. Well, I remember going to going to the launch party or you know Jeremy's party. I think it was at the One Ton for this one, right? And yeah, I think hadn't they released some publicity photos which included the astronaut shooting the doctor? Because I remember a friend of mine getting right. So, so basically, they plastered all these various publicity photos which included that, like with the doctor in mid regeneration. You know, that's that's picture. There are so many signs that the clever solution wasn't supposed to be it's a robot, mm. because the the fact that he starts regenerating suggests he's organic. Yeah. And mm. there's this robot throwing a Jean-Michel Jarre light show. But, the, the, you mm. know, the hand seems like the... Um, the skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. The, clinch, the clincher. Is, I, I, wanna mo- I want to move on, but... I've, I've, just, uh, I've just sent you guys the link for that, and perhaps, yeah. um, perhaps Richard could put it in the, um, in the, list, in the listing when he, puts it, when he puts this episode up. Yeah, sure. Just so people remember what, what the hell I'm talking about. There's an official BBC link. Just to wrap up one other thing, Series 2 of Sherlock didn't air until January 2012, so that was after all of this. So the two were in production roughly simultaneously, but he didn't have to write his way out of the Reichenbach fall until two years later, and indeed Gators did it. Right. Also, one final thing on this note, whether or not he made it up as he was going along, and and how you could possibly lose your thread over just a, a short 13-part series. This is the one with the gap in the middle, isn't it? Yes, which yes. is related to Sherlock because the rumours are always that he just couldn't, mm. just didn't have the time to do it on the on the original schedule with two programmes on the go at once. Mm. So maybe that's it. Maybe he did just. Although, weren't there some episodes that are actually swapped from the first half of the series to the second? The pirate one, wasn't it? Was that the this? Pirate, yeah, the th- pirate that's one right. Gets switched, yeah. Yeah. So in some senses, despite the fact that there was a six-month gap in the middle, mm. they had the whole thing nailed down by the time it was. Is it possible? I mean. The whole idea, supposedly, was this ambitious notion that the 11th Doctor's era would essentially be a story told backwards, with its conclusion coming with these, the rift in time or space that manifests as the crack in Amy's wall, mm-hmm. and that as the era went on, it moved towards the culmination of all of these events that had sort of echoed backwards through time. And I think initially, like the explosion of the TARDIS and Trenzalore and all that was all supposed to be in one ultimate situation. Mm. And that that got sort of partitioned off and delivered into separate milestones as it went. I think, 
I'm not 100% sure. Crikey. I don't know how much of that is oh, conjecture. Okay. Hmm. But I just wondered whether there was a bigger, longer way that this was going to tie in to that big final ultimate story and that the, the Trenzalore and the TARDIS exploding, creating the crack and the death of the Doctor on the beach might have all been in his final episode. But that somehow doesn't... I can't see how that could have all come together but I, I don't feel that the Tesselector was the original intended mm. resolution to this death on the beach. Like you say, the regeneration en- energy mm. is really hard to overlook. Mm. You know, even if we were overlooking all of the little dialogue cues, which are um, selling us a, a fake out, but mm. was there something else in mind? But I wonder what the arc for this series is supposed to be. Is, it, is the main point that this is the series where we get to understand who River Song is? That seems enough, because that is the one thing it does sort of yeah. deliver on, mm. yeah. <laughs> depending on how satisfied you were with the explanation. Can I talk about that for a bit? Is, River mm-hmm. Song's slightly different here. Have we ever, have we ever seen her as an action woman before? Oh, is she? She does a bit. She yes. has the standoff with the Dalek at the end of the Pandora Opens, doesn't yeah. she? Okay. There's also that bit at the start of the Angel two-parter where she's. Right. Jumping out of spaceships and shooting stuff. Right, whatever. I was thinking specifically of the scene at the end where she's twirling around single-handedly, mm. spinning yeah, around, blasting all the suns, which seems to come yeah. out of... I remember coming out of nowhere at the time. And yeah. watching it again, knowing that <laughs> the River Song is supposed to be a weapon that's been created by the silence, I'm, th- I'm just wondering if that's why there's a slight tweak to her character, because that's something he's only just thought of. Mm. Mm. I'm not, I don't want to get completely bogged down in the question of when Moffat thought of what, because, of course... It's not like we're saying if he didn't think of it all on day one, or in, you know, in 2010, then he's an idiot mm. and a shard and a <laughs> cheat. It's, <laughs> it's just in terms of reviewing these stories, there are moments that don't feel satisfying. And oftentimes it's because they didn't have their firefighting moments that are just there mm. to, to explain something else that's already been committed to. Mm. So it is it's relevant for reviewing this story, but not mm. not a criticism in and of itself. Mm. I got the impression from watching some of some of Alex Kingston's acting in this. I got the impression they must they must have known where they were going with her character at least that she was going to be you know she was the girl mm. and Amy's daughter because there's moments where there's dialogue and I can't remember exactly what it was that was being discussed exactly maybe the pregnancy but there's there's moments where she's looking where it's clearly meaningful to her right so you're thinking okay this is stuff that's set, set up so that gives you some clue that they had that much words out but i just think it's the the lack of the doctor and it's a bit like the silence the whole silence will fall thing not really <laughs> yes we get some gratuitous flashbacks into series five but but the silence as they appear here it's a definite retcon of that isn't it yes and the silence as they appear here and then when they turn up later again they're not much something resemblance. Else. no mm. There was one line of dialogue in this that I originally thought that it was all a jarring change later as to what the silence were or was. Um, <laughs> but there is one line in this where one of the silence says, Amy Pond will bring the silence. Bring the silence or bring the silence down or bring mm. about. I have to yeah. remember what the line was. But it was something that made me think, oh, there, there is actually a, an uncertainty as to what that term means and what it denotes in this story because I was always fairly sure it was a complete change but that well, line was odd do you mean I, th- I think there's splitters between series 5 and 6 I think there were references to the silence earlier in 5 weren't there and you, you yeah. feel by the, by oh, the yeah. end of Big Bang that that's been sorted out it was a out. phenomenon silence mm. there's nothing ever to suggest that silence will fall as anything other is anything metaphorical 
other than literally the silence at the end of the universe. Mm. Whereas, in this context, the silence are talking... Hmm, hang on a minute. Is, is it the silence C or is it the silence TS? Hmm. I think it changes. <laughs> I re- I'm sure at the time they were advertised as the silent so each one would yes. be a silent. Yes, I think which you're right. It was a media red flag that it changed from silence as an abstract concept mm. in the previous season. Mm. Again, that that version of the story is wrapped up here. The fact that the silence, the silence have used Amy Pond to create their weapon, which is the weapon is going to destroy the Doctor, and that's for the good of. <laughs> we should just talk about this one story. What's the link between the silence plan to kill the Doctor and the? Pandora opens where all the disparate beings of the universe come together because they know the Doctor is going to somehow end the universe and they sit him in a box. Uh, uh, what's the I, link? I think they're, they're two different plots, aren't they? Two different. But aren't they both because they think the Doctor's going to end the universe? <laughs> yeah, but that's already happened. So these silence must be. Of course, they're in the past. They're in 1969. Is that relevant? Are they? Are they trying to prevent the Doctor doing the same thing that we've just watched in the previous series? That'd be a bit rubbish, wouldn't it? Or are they looking at <laughs> something else? Or are they, or are they worried about the crack opening and destroying the universe? Because of course they later come back and all that's tied up in the, in his final story, isn't it? Mm. Can anyone remember? This is this is the problem. Oh, isn't God, it? it's also involved, isn't it? We're probably going to have to just concentrate on. And then don't they become the confessors in the in the final story or something like that? Isn't that they? Confess. The silence says to Amy, "We do you honor. You will bring the silence." Mm but your part will soon be over. Hmm. I mean, that doesn't answer any of the questions you asked, but I yeah. wanted to. Hmm. No, uh, yeah, it's, it's, he's planned it that far. You could argue that all that proves that ha- has been planned at this point is the first six or seven episodes. Hmm. Because by the mid-season break, we know that River is the weapon they've created to kill the Doctor. Hmm. And we also know that River is the little girl and the little girl's in a space suit. So we hmm. can see ahead to what's revealed in the season finale that... Hmm. Hmm. This was their plan. Mm. I thought that aspect of it, the clearest linear, if Stephen Moffat ever does linear, element of that storytelling was, at the time, brilliant and the standout part of it. And I I was fully on board for the regeneration tease of the child at the end. I thought that was incredibly exciting. Mm. And I loved the way it played out with the reveal of the baby. That was all great at the time. What I didn't enjoy at the time, and I still wasn't wild about on rewatching, is this convoluted season finale approach to this opening episode. I, I found it was just really alienating, and I thought there was too much in Day of the Moon. Mm. You've got the, the recorders in the palms of their hands, and then the recorder is part of the plot point that Amy's been kidnapped, mm. and you're still your brain is still reeling from the repercussions of what is the astronaut who's inside the suit and where's it going so you don't know what information you're supposed to be understanding processing thinking back to the start of the previous Mm, episode and then the disappearance of Amy is actually a whole nother plot thread in one respect Mm. in that it has nothing to do with the situation they're dealing with I get that yes it's it's a wider part of the astronaut story but the fate of Amy's baby in its many years to come is different to the fate of Amy in that room at that moment. And I found it just really jarring again this time around. It's interesting you said it feels like a season finale because Mrs. Morris wandered through as I was watching it and said, was this the end Was this the end of the season? I said, no, it's the first story. Mm. And mm. she could not believe it. She wrote to her MP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It's frustrating, I think, because we've got a lovely bit of, of American scenery. You know, they, they make the absolute best of the fact that they're in America for this. I mean, it's it's America dialed right up. You've got mm. a really good and interesting alien species here as well, you know, and a very clever concept that you that you you forget them as soon as you look away from them. And all of it feels like there's there's a great story in there mm. that that wasn't the one that you ended up writing. Yeah, I was expecting to come to this and not really like all the stuff that's just there setting up the season arc, but to enjoy mm. the silence, the mm. creatures, because I, I liked all that. It's mm. another genius idea, one of his deceptively simple ways of taking a, a common childhood or even adult fear that there's a thing behind you that you, you can feel it, but you can't see it or whatever, and making that science fiction. But um, yeah, I was expecting to like that side of it and have to have to suffer a few minutes, perhaps, of the arc stuff but it's about 50 50 isn't it mm. there's only really one episode mm. worth of plot that works in itself it's almost mm. like he's taken yeah, bl- a genius idea like he's taken blink but then padded out to two episodes with loads of extraneous guff mm. which would be heartbreaking so looking mm. at that in reverse i think you're right richard i think there was a really good one in there what the the treatment of it we actually get i think suffers because it's almost squeezed out by mm. Mm the stuff that's in service of the wider story. Yes. And, of course, you don't know when you're watching it the first time, you don't know what bits are going to pay off yeah. and, and not. It's just a few moments now where the silence really mm. make an impact in their mm. in themselves. And even by the end of this story, that's been slightly ruined because the rationale for what they're up to and why they do what they do isn't 100% satisfying and is mm. muddled, in my opinion. Yes, it's weird having talked about all of the permutations of Ambassadors of Death and attributed a lot of its issues to the influence of many different people getting involved. And this has the same feel yeah. that that there was a great alien invasion story. It was a really strong concept. And then it's like a second writer came along and said, ah, but we, we really need to <laughs> thread in all of this other stuff. So we'll give it a rewrite mm. and inject all this clone baby, whatever it is, regeneration stuff going on. And that line of dialogue, which I was so aghast at, I wrote down because I'd kind of forgotten the point of the story. (laughs) And so when it came along, I wrote it. The silence. Man went to the moon because the silence needed a spacesuit. I knew knew you were (laughs) going to say that. And they really hit it hard to try and sell that. Mm. It's almost like they're embarrassed by the fact that they're trying to make us believe that is the point of the story. Yeah. And they should be embarrassed. So rather than trying to hide it and bury that ridiculous <laughs> idea, as you, as anyone with any sense of shame would do, they yell it in your face, hoping they'll get away mm. with it that way. But no, mm. they don't really, do they? Because as a as a two part alien invasion with these bat like creatures that you forget, mm. there's so much potential. And they're never bat like again, I'd... are they? So you, you get that one shot of them hanging upside down <laughs> off the ceiling, and that's that's always no. forgotten about, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well. Again? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. In this story, they live in dank underground mm. caves and hang from ceilings. And then next mm. time we see them, they're just wandering around a spaceship. Mm. Did they say in a f- later one that this was a breakaway? <laughs> oh God! Did they? Oh, of God. course. <laughs> I, of course they did. I, have I made that right, up? Right. Well, if no, Ooh. I think you're right, and I think that again feeds into everything we were saying earlier. Because I mean, there is dialogue in this that says this is a full-on alien invasion. They're concentrated in the United States, but the, the, the silence are all over the world, yeah. mm. living in underground tunnels. They've been here thousands of years, thousands shaping of years. humanity when mm. when the demons yeah. and the Jaggeroth exactly. were having, the were having a day off. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. They might have got away with building the entire story towards the line, they did all this just because they wanted a spacesuit. If the function of the spacesuit in the story was mm. very clear and very strong and very powerful. And you'd yes. think, wow, that's mm. amazing. But by the time we get to that line, all I'm thinking is, that spacesuit reveal was a bit crap, wasn't it? They, mm-hmm. they, they hand wave that away. Oh, it's got its own life support system. It's, it's exactly what you'd create if you had a little lost girl and you couldn't look after herself and you wanted to keep her safe. Is it? What? <laughs> no, you'd create a Mark III travel machine is what you'd create if you... Yeah. The point about a plot that convoluted where all the strands come together in a single explanation summed up in a single line which is so strong you just slap your forehead and go, of course, is mm. that the writer does the work. They do it backwards. Mm. they think of that resolution and then they they untangle the strands and write their story backwards this just feels like it's been written forwards Mm. and the writer as he's going along has got all these strands now they're resolutely failing to tie up and eventually Mm. he just panics and ties a knot in them and says that'll do I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you know, why... Yeah, it does feel like it started with that image of the spacesuit, faceless spaceman, presumably shooting, emerging from the lake. And they remained wedded to that rather than rather than thinking, OK, what, you know, when that possibly should have gone, they could have found another way of killing the, of killing the Doctor at the start. Yes, it is fully grown River Song in the final reveal, mm, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Because that was the other disparity, was that... When they meet the spacesuit in the cliffhanger of the first part, mm. they have to pull off this sleight of hand with the camera work to hide the fact that it's a child inside. Mm. And she's obviously in stilts inside the spacesuit mm. because she's clearly not a seven year old girl coming through the doorway. And none of that kind of feels comfortable when you see her in the silence behind her yes, later as well. And you're looking at the heights and, and you're but... thinking. Then it's yeah, the same as our um, buggers, but yeah. It feels sort of all square pegging around mm. hole. <laughs> it's odd. I mean, the silence are a stupendous idea. Mm-hmm. The thing is, it's a bit like the angels. That they, it, it, it's, a, it's a great concept that bears no scrutiny whatsoever. It's <laughs> not a unique thing in Doctor Who history. But it's like, you know, when you're watching the angels and you, you, that you've, you're sold on one single rule, and it's just so, you know, it, it, it's so clear mm. and it's a great tagline, don't blink, and, and it just sells it to people. And yet, and then you start to think, well, you know, if you close one eye and then the other eye, or, you know, if you back, why don't people just back away slowly? Why do they stand in the room and then worry about taking... And I have the same issues with the silence. What you need is to be Rod Gilbert think... in that episode of Taskmaster where he gaffer tapes his eyes open to, to avoid <laughs> blinking for about five minutes. <laughs> There's so, so much logical difficulty with the with the silence, both in their establishment on the planet and then their subsequent demise. Mm. Because we're first properly introduced to them in the bathroom, where yeah. Amy goes to the bathroom, mm. yeah. and there's a silence in there, and then the woman comes in. And so we're introduced to this idea that this situation is playing out every moment of every day virtually somewhere on Mm, earth. You walk in and there's a silence in your room, something in the corner of your eye, and you keep doing this thing where you see it and then you unsee it. But rather than give us the notion that that, that they're going undetected in, in society like this, in a really insidious, undetected way, he kills this woman yeah. for for no right. explanation whatsoever. This is this can't be how they operate normally. No. They can't just go around vaporizing people because that that 
would draw attention. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a whole mm. plot line un unexplored there of this explains umpteen disappearances, but that's obviously not built into the story. But there's then all these logical questions of wh when they end up on film, are they seen? And you've got the issue with them being on the moon and they're in the moon footage, mm. but we can't see them. And then everyone is programmed to kill them. And, and yet the guy seems to be aware of the injured, silent, dying in the uh, orphanage. Mm -hmm. So that then asks the question, once everyone just starts murdering silence mm. in 1969, are people aware of the corpses? Can they trip over them? Can they see them? Are they rotting in our lounges and we're not conscious of them? <laughs> and yes. it's, there's a whole series of logical questions that, that start to come tumbling down yeah. when you give it a moment's thought. True, and the ending is the weakest bit by far, isn't it? That It just doesn't <clears throat> bear think about how that would play out. <clears throat> and, and the Doctor has brainwashed, as hypnotically suggested to everybody on the planet. So ordinary people, like little <clears throat> old ladies, are going to be trying to attack silences and failing mm. and getting killed. It's going to be an absolute bloodbath. <laughs> the question is also, because Canton, there's a point where he just shoots one, and you think surely people could at any given time see one and just shoot mm -hmm. it before they'd had the chance to forget it. They would yeah. just, you know, mm. if you saw one in your house and you were, there's a running gag about Americans and guns. Yeah. If an American saw one in their, their house, they would shoot it. And does that have any consequences? Is it there forever? Do they see it after it dies? Mm. Or has that just never happened? Mm. And they, they reference the fact that Amy's taken a photo of one in that scene mm. with the TARDIS. I quite like that. And I thought, oh, are they going to make a reference to that because of the whole thing about like crypto cryptozoology and stuff like that? And the fact that now people carry cameras everywhere mm. and don't see... Still haven't got any good Yeti footage. Okay, Amy has the... Because she's wandering around in 1969 with effectively the world's first camera phone. Mm. And therefore she's uniquely placed to take the world's first photo of a silent because she happens to have a camera on her yeah. at the right Which time. is interesting, isn't it? Because one thing the Doctor doesn't say, point out, is that they've shaped all of human history to get to this point so they can get a spacesuit. But they have... They've, it's a race against time to develop the spacesuit before people develop what the camera phone portable <laughs> cameras yes. and they only just get in in time otherwise mm. then again they'd be buggered i think you're right that these ideas you say that they're good on the surface but they don't stand for scrutiny they're, mm. they're massive like, big simple ideas and they're very impressive if you don't think about them for too long and i think moffat knows that and i think that's why he doesn't linger on them for that long that's why blink's only one episode it, mm. it blink pretty much does everything you can do with the weeping angels and sensibly gets out while quits while it's ahead and most people feel that there's diminishing returns when they're brought back and here i think it's the same thing i must wonder if that's the reason why he did pad this story out rather than just doing a concentrating on that one gimmick of these aliens and their unique mm. powers because he knew that it wouldn't stand up to too much scrutiny i don't know it's a bit of each isn't it they're sort of playing second fiddle in their own story, but then it does the entire resolution does turn out to draw attention to the weaknesses, the logical mm. weaknesses. But the, the great moments, uh, the visual stuff, the memento stuff with the... Um, oh, yes, yeah. But he's so good at coming up with these brilliant ideas and, and just throwing mm. them away very quickly. That's all I've mm. done with about half a minute. Mm. You could, mm. or your mate Nolan would have got an entire <laughs> film out of that. <laughs> memento with aliens. I'd watch mm. that. I'd love to have seen that rather than this mm. one. And also, and this is completely irrelevant, but it's one of those a small subset of alien invasion stories where I think it would work better if it wasn't set on Earth. Half the problems we have about it are because we live on Earth and we, mm. and we think, well, this doesn't make any sense. I can't, I can't really imagine 
this playing out in the real mm. world and also doesn't fit with the, the history of Earth as we've seen in other Doctor Who stories. Were they there in the background of all of those? Mm. It, it mm. just confuses you. If there was another planet where it turned out that they had been cohabiting with another That's race who couldn't be, so who had these powers, then you could tell that story in isolation and without any of these things that make you think, eh? Mm. But of course, nobody likes stories set on alien planets or alien cultures because nobody cares about the planet Zog, mm. do they? We've been told this. <laughs> And this is the thing that the this is where it all falls apart. It's just if they are aliens, why were they not cohabitants of Earth or something like that? I mean, that would have been a genuinely creepy idea. Again, we're talking, you know, we're talking about something that again, why the hell? Okay, they got they got here somehow. They have whatever these spaceships are that appear to be somewhat TARDIS-like uh-huh. in some of their properties, such as the one that we saw in the Lodger, and that we then get a name. You know, we get to see one here. And yet they have to manipulate humanity into In all their tunnelling, did they never come across a, a Silurian base with better technology? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we do, like you say, we don't know where they came from, how, how we got here. And they've been on mm. Earth for thousands of years. So we presume they have spacefaring technology. So was to create a spacesuit, was it really their best option to wait around on Earth for thousands of years until we cobbled really something together. We really to invent the windmill first. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a long, slow road. They could have mm. given us microchips thousands of years earlier and we might have got there mm. quicker. But you just think there are any number of more logical reasons for them to be on Earth than to eventually mm. manufacture a spacesuit. And the, the, there was extra technology. I mean, I, I, I did lose focus for a period, so I don't know what the explanation was, but that spacesuit was more than 1969 Earth technology, wasn't it? So where did they get the rest of the stuff? Hey, hey, the, mm. when they, the doctor said when they were investigating it, it was full of a dozen different types of alien technology, yeah. didn't he? So Where did that but, come from? But just left, just left it. Why didn't they use whatever cultures... That was salvaged from tortured, tortured warehouse. Yeah, because that's clearly <laughs> better than anything hanging around. I'm gonna have to risk um, expanding out beyond this store again. Where did they cut? Do they time travel the silence? Have they have they gone back into the part Earth's past? Well, that's what I was wondering. Mm. I can't remember to enact this plan. They they chosen from the future that they came from. They would have known at what pace earth technology and society developed mm. and they would have known unless it's a predestination paradox they would have known that that happened without their involvement mm. so i don't really see a renegade group or not and, and why didn't they go to russia who were slightly further along with their <laughs> spacesuit development mm. a, a couple mm. of years beforehand should yeah. have been set would, as wouldn't a diving bell have done as I was well thinking, because yeah. all the really all the really important bits are, are right are hand waved away as alien yeah, technology because all the stuff keeping her alive it said it said you could survive in this spacesuit without food that's not nasa technology so yeah mm. and again moving moving beyond this story it, it's unsatisfying because the whole story of how baby river ended up on earth on her own wandering around as a child in the 60s doesn't really make any sense does it it's not like all that happens for a good reason and we're desperately trying to find out why that happens randomly so we're given a convoluted explanation for a a random creative decision for the uh, listeners at home and definitely not me can you just remind them how did baby river end up on earth was she just dumped in the orphanage i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i don't know 
I don't think they ever plugged the gap in between. Why did they dump her somewhere and leave her on her Madame own? Madame Kovarian, is that her name? She Madame Kovarian. We see her in the hatch. So that yes. yes. Ah, but no, but that's I've forgotten about that's that. That's not indicating that she's in the orphanage at all. That's that's no. Amy seeing reality that's from Amy's... her prison. Yes. So I briefly thought mm. that that was an indicator that Madame Kovarian was mm. supervising that orphanage. We get the clues mm. that the baby has grown up. Baby River has grown up there, don't we? Because we see the photos in there mm. i mean is mm. is an orphanage in 1969 the best place to hide your proto time lord child weapon and wait for the space mm. program to develop i mean that's presumably time travel isn't it because she's not born in 69 so mm. she's yes yeah, sent- the whole true. thing feels to me like somebody's presented the writer with a grab bag of ideas can you make a story like a party game can you make a story out of all these they draw them out of a hat a spacesuit, mm. the apollo moon landings amy pond's daughter growing up to river song alien oh and they've got a really good alien you like this aliens with the power to make you forget them when you can't see them can you put all that together no <laughs> <laughs> but i'm a professional so i shall try why you would set yourself that challenge yeah. sense, to come back to to your original point yeah yeah i can understand it if it was the season finale and he was running out of steam but it's the opener to the season it's the one setting at his stall yes. for his bold new vision his bold new vision is let's confuse people as much as possible and just in case there's any chance of following it we won't even have the cliffhanger resolved immediately mm. it's the inverse of bad wolf where russell t davis has, has said that you know he sprinkled these ideas throughout the season and then scrambled to pull them together at the end and named the space <laughs> station bad wolf and made rose bad wolf and did his best to tie it all up and you think okay that's a passable you know you he was introducing an idea as he went along and then he, he, he wrapped it all mm. up fine. But as you say, this is done in reverse. Plan your season. This is your season opener. You lay out all your threads and either don't know where they're going or lose mm. the threads or yeah. change your mind. I would be fascinated to know whether there was a big coherent plan that made sense of all of the oddities that we've noticed and that it changed. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I can't. I can't believe you'd start doing something like this without having a plan. It's inconceivable, isn't it, Giles? <laughs> I get the impression he has a tendency to just run off after the next clever idea and not be that bothered about how about whether it, whether it all um, actually adds up. There's so much in this that that I mean, it's only in retrospect when you sort of sit down and start pulling the threads apart that you can see all of this. I mean, it seems to me that in the sort of 45 minutes that it lasts, mm. there's so many things coming at... Well, sorry, there's two lots of episodes, aren't there? Mm. There's so much coming at you again and again and again that, you, that it's, it's sort of hard in the in the moment to be as analytical as all that yeah and you can't tell which bits are gonna which bits are relevant to the main plot and which bits are... it's hard to be analytical but i hope you're right that there are people who enjoy it because they're not trying to i don't know it seems like a, a very thin line to me that the way you would have to watch this turning off enough of your brain to just enjoy the spectacle and the big ideas without worrying because I remember the first time just as the second time and the third time i always had this niggling feeling it wasn't ad- mm. it wasn't connecting mm. Yeah. And the, the sum of the, the whole was less than the sum of the parts. That's what that's fundamentally my problem with it. There are so many great ideas, and all of it's very nicely written, apart from that one line that Gav picked up. And of course it is. I mean, it's spectacular. It's ingenious. Mm. It's, it's funny. It's clever. It's moving. But really, it doesn't add up to a hill of beans. Mm. At the risk of lampshade in the format of the podcast, just to go back to Ambassadors of Death again. That that story where it fails is hoping you don't notice and is doing its best to muddle along and make coherent 
all of the plot threads that you've been given along the way. And for mm-hmm. the most part, many of them come together at the end. Whereas this is supplying mystery after mystery after mystery and inviting you to wonder and speculate. And, and everything is signposted for your attention. Because there was a point a few minutes ago and I suddenly started to feel horribly guilty because it wasn't my intention to, to just rip into this story because it's, it's enormously entertaining for a lot of mm. it. And it's very, very funny. And I love how witty it is. And it's got some absolutely sparkling dialogue. And yet it just all crumbles under the, the smallest amount of analysis. And I was thinking to myself, well, is that fair and does it matter? And should we, you know, there's always this sort of rhetoric that comes out, oh, you're thinking about it too much. And I thought, no, because this story is inviting us to think about it. It's setting up these yeah. mysteries. It's saying, look at all this interesting, weird and clever stuff. What do you make mm. of it? And then leaving it on a cliffhanger as well. It's not like mm. it's trying to cover its inadequacies. It's not like Ambassadors of Death's rewrite problems where it's all just swept under the carpet and just try and focus on the fact the ending all makes sense. It's the exact opposite. It's it's highlighting everything, all of these frayed ends, and, it, and it's just inviting you to wonder where they're going. And the answer is, beyond this story, nowhere. Mm-hmm. Well, not nowhere, mm. but messily. Hard agree. Well done. We can't top that, can we? I'm, I'm going home. <laughs> oh, I am. You are home. So, I mean, if, if, if we maybe try and tease out a few of the connections between these stories. There's a space suit in both of them. <laughs> yeah, well, well, there is. Uh, the spacesuit is used in the same way in both of them as well, isn't it? It's a way of obscuring who's inside it. Mm. Mm. So it, it, it's a way of, of concealing maybe who mm. who the protagonists mm. are. We've got aliens that don't speak, except that eventually they do. And actually, they sound quite similar, don't they? Oh, yeah. Am I right in thinking yeah. that? The, the, mm. the, 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 the effect of the voice is sort of similar. Not the little girl, the, uh, the, the no. silence. Uh, the silence, the silence and, and the uh, and the ambassadors. Mm. Oh, hang on. Do the ambassadors sound different from the one on this spaceship? That um, no, they all sound like Peter Halliday underwater. They sound like Arcturus. I've only just oh, watched yeah. Peter Halliday. So, and you reminded so, me of something. So it's, inc- yeah. yes. it's not the first time Moffat's used spacesuits, is it? But that doesn't help us get closer to uh, mm. comparing the two stories that we're actually supposed to be talking about. I was thinking about cultural phenomena or the zeitgeist of the times in which they were presenting space and aliens and Mm. that kind of thing. And so in the sort of 50s, 60s, there was a a preoccupation with radiation and and that kind of thing and and, uh, nuclear weapons. Um, And that's sort of hanging on a bit in Ambassadors of Death, this this radiation-based stuff. But it's also got the sort of the creeping hard science of of 2001 coming in. And then I was thinking about how in decades later, like in the 1990s, aliens were framed in the Area 51 governmental narrative. Mm. And there was an enormous spate in the real world, quote unquote, of UFO sightings. And everyone thought they were seeing grey aliens and there was all kinds of Mm. new stories constantly about UFOs and there was loads of video footage and stuff and it was all it was all framed in this conspiratorial narrative. Yes, X-Files. And then in, in the 2000s, I was trying to think of what the sort of zeitgeist is was and I was thinking about how the storytelling trope, I don't like the word but I can't think of a better one, um, <laughs> became that reality is not as you perceive it and, uh, and, mm. and it yeah. seemed to kick off 
strongly with the Matrix, which is the very end mm. of the 90s. But you've got things like Inception and then... Vanilla Sky? Much yeah. overlooked film. Mm, yes. And things like the Mandela Effect, which is much talked about and YouTubed about. Mm. The perception that real events that you think you've witnessed, you've witnessed in another way. And then you take that into mm. the moon landing conspiracy and the flat earth and that you, we're just constantly mm. lied to or that something that you think about the world is just fundamentally wrong. And mm. it's interesting that that is kind of at the core of both the silence and the treatment of the moon landings. It, it's it's mm. not that the moon landings are fake in Day of the Moon, but it's that they're not as you think or you, not as you remember them because the broadcast is actually sort of different. And so it's a sort of mm. slight twist on that. So that was my like that. kind of thought. Ambassadors of Death is, mm. is here is a fictionalized version of hard science not going to the moon but going to Mars and Day of the Moon is here is presenting what you thought was the facts about the time we went to the moon and it's not as you really perceived it mm. I was going to touch on yeah just thinking about connections and so on and it, it relates to that obviously these are both you know these are both conspiracy thrillers really aren't they in some ways and it just it just suddenly occurred to me as you were saying that Gav that of course um the stuff at the start of episode two is a lift from Capricorn One. Is it? I yeah, seen anyone? It? No. Or if I have, I, I don't remember it. Very fun Peter Hyams movie before he did twenty ten. Ah. OJ yeah. Simpson and others involved in a fake Mars landing. Oh, of course, yeah. The bit where they the astronauts break out from the sound stage and are trying to get to the real world, as it were. It's, it's funny, Stephen Moffat seems to have a, a bit of a fixation on that particular trope of being forgotten or the fallibility of memory or... Because I was, I was thinking about Amy's choices, and I know he didn't write it, it was Simon Nee, but mm. it's a story about sort of a fake version of reality. But you got the, the lodger has similar echoes and that then ties in ultimately with this and the Big Bang and later the War Doctor and there's a running theme of mm. being forgotten or the the, the power of memory yeah. the rings of Akaten the, the leaf and mm. uh, just the the, the strength yeah. of not, not belief but of being remembered mm. and it's an interesting thing that resonates and the silence is sort of the ultimate mm. personification of that the things that can stop being remembered and have ultimate control mm. because because fundamentally we can only ever act on what we think we know and if something can alter mm. what you think you know then it it has complete power over you mm. it's interesting it also comes up in the doctor's discussion with rory is it in episode two mm. he asks with, when does he remember when he's asking does he does he remember waiting for you know yeah. being two thousand ah. years on on earth and of course and i initially i, I thought oh that's interesting because he he revisits that with Ashilda slash me mm. in whichever season that is. Nine. Nine, isn't it? Yes. Mm. With the idea. I think by the time when we get to the woman who lived, she remembers who she was when she's a highway woman, mm. doesn't she? Mm. But they have some discussion about it. And then by the time we get to the far future version or the Trap Street version, I think she's starting to lose her memories. And the, the idea that there's only so much memory you can cram into a brain before things, into a human brain before things start leaking out. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a shame it didn't really kind of lean into some of that stuff more or, in, or into something more because it, 
I was kind of just fundamentally left feeling okay. Aside from being a string of very impressive and individually enjoyable set pieces and plot points that don't necessarily hang together, either within the episode or or certainly beyond when you're looking at it as such a keystone of a wider season. I was thinking, what is this actually about? Mm. It doesn't really. Um, I had that exact same thought. It doesn't thought. really have what a is this story about. Yeah. It doesn't have a. It doesn't really have a theme in the same way that I guess Ambassadors of Death does with that paranoia and the mm. literal xenophobia. I guess. I mean, I guess go back to the. We talked about Silurians about three hours ago, uh, and you know, it feels <laughs> like the the end of it. The, the Doctor is behaving a bit like the Brigadier in the Silurians, in that he's sort of condoning the widespread murder of these mm. aliens i mean um, you know i mean the aliens appear to be up to no good but at the same time they you know they're they're sort of being silent so not mm. necessarily a, a good reason to commit genocide on them mm. um, and equally river song shooting 150 of them as well it, it it all feels like we're supposed to be quite happy that this is the end resolution but at the same time it also feels like the sort of thing that you know if it weren't Moffat, if it was something in in the original series, somebody would be absolutely up in arms about what's the you know what's be happening. Some here. Eric Sayward esque massacre. Of, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. but because he does it with a nudge and a wink, and and Alex Kingston says, "My old man didn't see that, mm. did he?" Mm. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. The bathroom scene. Why why does that woman get killed? It it's yeah. pretty much the only example we have that the silence are in any way a negative influence yeah, in indeed. their occupation. I mean, the, the the doctor says this is like kicking the Romans out of Rome. Yeah. And you think, well... And he doesn't know it happened, does he? Yeah. He's not even seen them. There's there's, there's, there's apparently no negative effect. They've been... Mm-hmm. They've, they've, they've stimulated the economy. They've, they've, they've <laughs> got us to the moon. What has the silence ever done to <laughs> yeah. us, for us? And yeah. you just think, well, this is a bit... Brutal, but then you think, oh, well, I suppose, it, yeah. that's, what, I suppose that's why the woman had to die. Exactly, but he, it they seems killed a bit... Joy in the bathroom. So, presumably, mm. these deaths we have to accept these deaths are going on. Well, it must be genocide. Yeah, yeah. therefore, um, the only option is just <laughs> inciting the entire mm. human race to brutally murder mm. them at any given opportunity, which is nice. Mm. Mm. I've got a very banal thought uh, to conclude with, which is. Yeah, another link, pregnancy. So, you know, famously, Caroline ah! John was pregnant <laughs> while she was uh, running away from the villains in, in and kept secret. three. Yeah, and uh, and of course, Amy is is potentially pregnant in the in the fiction of this, although um, is she, isn't she? Mm-hmm. Has anyone seen Wonder Woman 1984? <laughs> 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 no. no. I think this is I think this is the fifth reference you've come up with this, this was, episode, Paul. That I, I was wondering. Seen. I was wondering whether it was set in Britain. Uh, sorry, not set in Britain. Whether it had been filmed over here, because there were various little telltale signs, or things that that doesn't look like America. Well, that actually mm. looks like Britain. And then um, it wasn't until the uh, there's a guest appearance by the president of the USA, the fictional president of the USA, in Wonder Woman mm. 1984, and it's played by Stuart Milligan. Oh, oh right. who of course okay. is one of our resident uh, American mm, actors over yes. here, and was ch- yes. played Nixon mm. in the latter story we've been discussing. So uh, yes. yeah, that was the clincher for me. Yeah. <laughs> Eureka! I okay. said to the Mrs. Martin, <laughs> they, filmed that, they filmed that here. That's yes. the play. And, and I said he was in the Impossible Astronaut, Stroke Day of the Moon. She said, "What the hell was that?" I said, "No, 
All right, then. He was in Jonathan Creek. <laughs> he played the American in Jonathan yeah, Creek. We did. watched it last week. Mm. Yeah. Um, can I stop this anecdote? <laughs> I think it's from <laughs> some way past the point at which it was relevant. What do we all think of the Richard Nixon performance? I like the nose. <laughs> no, the nose is a bit... Um, I, I remember him in interviews explaining how he'd studied his mannerisms and, uh, and certain yeah, right. certain little... Was he watching Futurama? Uh, quirks of his speech thought. and um, knowing mm. how proud he was <laughs> of the way he'd reproduce these little... I'll tell you what, though, he's used in the same way that New Who uses Churchill, takes a sort of but, yeah, uh, this... nasty right-wing old bugger and makes them a cuddly, mm, hero, yeah. funny hero. It's strange yeah. that we never see any... I don't know, you never get uh, Tony Benn or in <laughs> Doctor Who, do you? Clement yeah. um, Dantley. Always... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's precisely that. It's, it's a very broad pastiche, isn't it, rather than a, anything mm. else? He's not given a lot to work with, so don't blame him. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to be more annoyed at it than I was because I kind of I thought, oh, we shouldn't be treating him as comic relief and so on. And then I thought, yeah. On the other hand, personally, well, maybe that's just because I'm a Brit. I'm I'm far more offended by <laughs> I'm far more offended by Churchill than I am by yeah by the representation of Nixon. <laughs> yeah, well, how are we going to feel about it when in in forty years' time they've got a comedy Donald Trump? Didn't we just have we a comedy? Had, we had one Donald at Christmas, Trump. didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a comedy Boris Johnson. Mm. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> That's just Boris Johnson. Oh, anyway. Uh, that's getting very political now, isn't it? We're in trouble. We'll have people tuning out in droves. I enjoyed your the first two and a half hours of your discussion about <laughs> science fiction and Doctor Who. But I don't come here to, kit to listen to politics. Razor sharp satire. There's no, pol- there's no politics in Doctor Who. There never has no. been, ever. Dear something so-called who. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Imagine my disgust. <laughs> well, assuming that, that we managed to edit that into some kind of shape, thanks for your excellent observations and for a very fun chat. Yes, it's great fun. Thank you for having Thank me you, again. Lots of interesting perspectives. We'll keep coming back probably every month or so to do something similar. And you, you, you never know, we might hit upon something that we like so much we don't try and uh, pull holes What's in the it fun for in that? <laughs> two and a half hours. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, I feel like we, we liked both of these to some extent, but the extent that we didn't like them, we, we spent a long time talking about it. It's funny, I, I, mm. I, came, I came to the Ambassadors of Death knowing I thought it was boring and stupid and changed my mind on it. Mm. And then I had to very hurriedly watch uh, Possible Astronaut Day of the Moon, thinking I, mm. I knew where I stood with it, and found myself more frustrated by it than I ever have before, so I I mean, I was never wildly keen on it but I have flipped slightly on both of them well, that's today. Some, good, there's some balance in that, mm. I like that mm. Mm. Yes, I will, yeah, revise my opinion on Ambassadors of Death that it makes some sense Very good stopped and on that bombshell yes (laughs) you're not surprised to see me not particularly no our guests usually come back i'm surprised to see you i oh sorry (laughs) (laughs) my voice went strangely giles like then (laughs) that's all right i I was just gonna say say i find it it... (laughs) 
Go, go on, Charles. Have a is go. It me or is uh, there a horrible delay? There is a long it's delay. It's like a delay of three yes. seconds. First up, it's third Doctor story, Ambassadors of Death. Uh, sorry, I'll see if I can actually speak that. 